0: Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And this week we are discussing a novel. Hurrah! That novel is The ABC Murders. Catherine Brobeck, tell us a little bit about the publication history of this one.
1: So it was first released in the UK. Fancy
0: that. It's
1: been a while. (laughs) So January 6th. 1936, and then in the U.S. by of course Todd Mead on February 14th of the same year.
0: Let's just get right into our victims because we actually have a bunch. <laughs> our first victim, her name is Alice Asher, and she is a tobacconist slash newsstand proprietress, a resident of Andover. Yes, that is Andover <gasps> with an A. a. She is late middle-aged, which I think is being kind. She's, she, she's kind of old, and she's estranged from her abusive husband and found murdered in her newspaper shop bashed over the head with an ABC rail guide found open on the counter to the rail schedule for Andover, and she is our first victim.
1: Our second victim is one Elizabeth Betty Barnard. Oh, my gosh.
0: Hmm. I'm seeing a pattern.
1: <laughs> she's a waitress. She's a resident of Bexhill. <laughs> um, and she's the younger sister of Megan Barnard, who we'll get to. And she's found with the ABC Guide under her body on the beach.
0: Third, we have Sir Carmichael Clark of Churston. Yes, those mm. are all C's. And he is killed while on his regular Oceanside Constitutional. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though at this point, you know, the whole town of Tristan has actually been warned or rather anyone with a C name since Scotland Yard and our dear Monsieur Poirot have cottoned on to the whole alphabet thing. But for yeah, very that is obvious
1: a, reasons. It's for, not actually through deductive reasons. It's through obvious ones, which we will momentarily get to. Yes, so, we will. Um,
0: <laughs> our final victim, <laughs> Catherine.
1: One George Earlsfield. Oh, what is that? Mm. You say that does not start with a D. Thunk. <laughs> um, well, he's a gentleman in a movie theater who gets murdered. However, the city is Doncaster, so this one seems like a mistake or perhaps a panic move. Whatever, we'll get there too. For whatever reason, his name is not a double D.
0: So let's talk about our suspects, because this is, a, this is a curious case here. Often, as we're going through our, or beginning our list of suspects on this podcast, we lament how it's everyone and how there's a large cast of characters, because that's part of the fun of Christy. Here, that is actually still the case. It actually is everyone. But it kind of seems like it's no one for a large part of the book. And even saying that it's everyone is a spoiler. But, hey, we're we're going to be spoiling things all over the place. So there's an argument to be made that there's really only one suspect until we actually get to our solution, and that will be the first suspect that we go through. But I just wanted to make that caveat because this is just a really odd situation for a Christie novel when it comes to our suspects. But starting off with a major bang, we have Alexander Bonaparte Cust. That's right. Initials A, B, C. And we get some rather awkward third-person <laughs> insight into Mr. Cust, who is a stocking salesman and who lives in a room in a boarding house. He also gets migraine mm-hmm. headaches and has epilepsy and no family or friends. Oh, guy, hey, you, know. you do say. He also happens to be in every city where an ABC murder happens. He owns a typewriter. We'll get to the typewritten letters that this madman killer seems to be writing. And yeah, as, as already mentioned, his initials are ABC. So huge suspect and kind of the only suspect, depending on how astute you are as a reader for a large part of the novel. But that is Mr. Alexander Bonaparte-Cust.
1: Then we have Mr. Franz Ascher, who is Alice Ascher's husband. He's an abusive drunk and a German supposedly he's much more verbally abusive and has never indicated that he's physically abusive towards Alice.
0: Right. And again, with the spoilers, but he didn't do it. And I just thought it was interesting because we came across this exact character type recently in The Man in the Mist with that cranky leftist poet who was mm-hmm. constantly talking about choking out the woman that he didn't like. The Reddit troll, if you will. But yeah. it's, it's such a Christy type that verbal abuse is almost used as proof of the absence of physical abuse, which let's be honest, does it really always work that way in life? No. But it's a Next we have Mary Drower, or actually Drower, I believe was the way it was pronounced in one of the adaptations. I think so. So Mary Drower, let's say. This is Alice Asher's niece. Um, She's not really all that suspicious, but she gets some stuff from Alice's estate. She saw Alice regularly and she's a character in the book, so we may as well include her.
1: (laughs) Then we have the aforementioned Megan Barnard, who's Betty's sister and who pretty much thought her sister was a promiscuous ditz who leeched off their parents and who took a lot of attention away from everything else in the world.
0: Megan Barnard tells it like it is. She does. She's a truth teller.
1: And a very nice professional lady in London. So, you know, we know she can't be all that bad.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which is a, which is also a type that Christy mm-hmm. usually treats pretty well and actually fills out nicely. I, I liked yeah. Megan Barnard. I thought she was a good character. Mm-hmm. Then we have Donald Fraser, who was Betty Barnard's boyfriend, on whom she was very clearly cheating. See, aforementioned sister who thought she was promiscuous ditz. He was also kind of stalking her in order to prove that she was cheating on him.
1: He's fiery-tempered. And and again, and the fiery temper, again, is code for possibly verbally abusive.
0: Hence, not physically abusive. Guess what? He didn't do it either.
1: Then we have Lady Clark, who is a dying invalid. um, And she stays, like, mostly in her room, um, really, really, really hopped up on painkillers, Mm. watching out the window as she wastes away from cancer.
0: Then we have Franklin Clark, who is Sir Carmichael Clark's brother, who travels the world on behalf of his brother's business interests. Sir Carmichael Clark was a very wealthy man, and who now watches over some of his affairs in Tristan.
1: And last but not least, we have Miss Thora Gray, the Swedish seductress, um, who is Clark's uh, secretary slash, I guess, kind of general house assistant. She seems to kind of have a thing for Sir Carmichael. Or Franklin Clark, possibly. And uh, she, gets, uh, she gets fired by Lady Clark once her late husband was off. Because Lady Clark does not like the Swedish ingenue.
0: So let's talk about the world as it appears to be. As we mentioned, this is is a bit of an odd story, and we should probably deal with the point-of-view oddity here first. This is a Hastings-narrated story, which, hooray! I was very excited that we were back to a first-person Hastings story, but not completely. Most of the story, Hastings is narrating, and he begins by telling us that he came over from Argentina, where he's living the dream with Cinderella and his kids. He has some business to do in London, so he's there for a conveniently extended stay. Naturally, he comes to see his dear, dear Monsieur Poirot, and... He is really in the mood for crime, and he's reminiscing about all the times that he and Poirot had hunting together ever since Mysterious Affair at Styles. and Poirot, he's being extra discerning about the kinds of mysteries he likes, and he insists that he really likes closed-room mysteries, which are very much the standard sort of mystery that we are used to coming across in a Christie novel, and it feels like Christie is kind of preparing the reader with this conversation for the odd kind of a case that our Mr. Poirot and Hastings are about to be saddled with.
1: Right, because Poirot receives a mysterious typewritten letter, and it reads as follows. Mr. Hercule Poirot, you fancy yourself, don't you, at solving mysteries that are too difficult for our poor, thick-headed British police? Let us see, Mr. Clever Poirot, just how clever you can be. Perhaps you'll find this not too hard to crack. Look out for Andover on the 21st of the month. Yours, etc." ABC.
0: Poirot is sufficiently disturbed by this to bring it to Hastings's attention as well as the attention of Inspector Jap. We've got lots of Inspector Jap in this novel as well. It's fantastic. Oh it's exciting. Always love it. And they both listen to him but we get the sense that they both think he's reading too much into this but something just doesn't sit right with Poirot with this letter. It makes him uneasy and he's nervous that something bad is going to happen on the 21st at Andover. Specifically murder.
1: Guess what happens? Murder? Um, Yeah, murder. Mrs. Alice Asher, the tobacconist, has been found in her shop, bludgeoned to dead over the head. You know, she's married, as we find out, to this German lout um, who's a drunk and who seems like the likely culprit, except, again, as we said, only verbally abusive. And also, he depended on her for money, so killing her is not actually in his best interest.
0: I just wanted to give Christy credit. There's a lot of implied prejudice against Mr. Asher as a German, which we're also supposed to read as another point in his favor, almost, because people just seem set against him and perhaps he's had a really rough life because of it, and it was the opposite of a, xena, of a xenophobic moment in a Christie novel. So I very much appreciated yeah. that.
1: Poirot and Hastings, they go back to London essentially empty handed, except for all these details about Mrs. Asher's very tragic past because it turns out she was like once a really great beauty with Mr. Asher, and like they seemed a happy
0: couple and it all fell apart. So a month later, Poirot gets another letter. Dear Miss, Mr. Poirot, well, what about it? First game to me, I think. The Andover business went with a sing, didn't it? But the fun's only just beginning. Let me draw mm-hmm. your attention to Bexhill on Sea. Date the 24th. What a merry time we are having. Yours, etc. A, B, C. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> well, guess what happens? Betty Barnard gets murdered in Bexhill on Sea.
1: Yeah, on the beach, another B word. <laughs> um, with another with ABC A, B, C guide. With a with a belt, in fact, her own <laughs> belt. Um, I don't know that those were necessarily part of the B-clues, but they are very convenient. Um, and the ABC Guide is found under her body. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out Betty was, uh, how shall we put this nicely? Um, Betty was for me. Oh, well, that, I wouldn't say that that was putting it nicely, but...
0: Sorry, that was the Blanche Devereaux in me.
1: Grandma Hollingsworth always said I was a little flighty. Or was it a little floozy? Um, she saw what she wanted and she took it. And that was with disregard to the feelings of her fellow waitresses and also to the uh, feelings of her actual boyfriend, Donald Fraser.
0: Who she's like quasi-engaged to, but not really. It seems like she could be engaged if she wants, but she doesn't really want to. So she's like, "Mm, we'll see if you'll do later after I date. And have intimate moments with a lot of other men. Sometimes I'd wake up in the middle of the night just sweating and screaming and clawing (laughs) like a trapped panther unable to release the lusty steamy passions that constantly threaten to erupt from within me. What's bothering everyone is a young woman being strangled on a beach with her own belt is a very different mo to the first crime which was an old lady in a shop being hit mm-hmm. over the head, so everyone sees the connection with the alphabet, and, and Poirot obviously has alerted them to the second letter, so it's not that they don't see the connection, but they are just puzzled by this, and this is where we also start getting hot and heavy with Inspector Chrome, the super silliest Inspector Chrome, who likes to say, oh yes... Uh, in response to any question, I quite enjoyed him, actually. And he's young and condescending and thinks he knows more than he does. And um, we get a lot of him, actually. Almost indeed more than Jap, actually. I would have perhaps preferred to see a bit more of Jap, but I did enjoy him I Chrome. would have
1: liked more Jap, but now instead we get Inspector Crown. That's okay. No.
0: Isn't, isn't that always the way?
1: I know. Uh, well, unless you're Hastings, who I'm sure would actually, you know... Prefer less Jap.
0: <laughs> he would, yeah. There's, there's the the runner of chasings and Jap really not liking each other is certainly continued in, in these stories. It
1: definitely is. <laughs> um, well, so post the murder of Betty Barnard. Guess what? A month later, Poirot gets another letter, nope. again typewritten, um, and it says, "Dear Mister Paro, not so good at these little criminal matters as you thought yourself, are you? Rather past your prime, perhaps." Let us see if you can do any better this time. This time, it's an easy one. Churston on the 30th. Do try and do something about it. It's a bit dull having it all my own way, you know. Good hunting. Ever yours. ABC.
0: So there's already been a conference at Scotland Yard. Several conferences, actually. Hastings says that whenever he thinks back to this case, he thinks of conferences. They Mm -hmm. were just, they were endless. I feel his pain. I think many can feel his pain on that front. So everyone's freaking out, and they're all kind of manned and prepared to handle the next case, the C case, with as much advance time as, as possible. Unfortunately, this letter seems to have been sent to the wrong address. The murder, as per the letter, is set for the 30th, but the letter was actually received on the 30th mm-hmm. because it was sent to Poirot at White Horse Mansions instead of White Haven mansions. So everyone then really freaks out and, and, you know, just kicks it up into the highest gear possible and starts calling everyone with the letter C in Churston, But unfortunately, they're too late.
1: Too late for Sir Carmichael Clark, who's found killed on his favorite hiking path very shortly after his distraught brother, Franklin Clark, receives the call from Scotland Yard to warn his brother. So Carmichael is left behind by his dying wife, Lady Clark, and said sexy Swedish secretary, Thora (laughs) Gray.
0: Yeah. What to do? Frustrated by all of this, the bereaved friends and family of the three victims, basically all the people that we mentioned in our list of suspects other than Alexander Bonaparte Cust, show up at Whitehaven, not Whitehorse, mansions with Monsieur Poirot in order to offer their crime-solving services to him, hoping that some sort of—and Poirot kind of suggests this, that together they don't know what they actually know. They don't know the value Mm -hmm. of something that they know, and they're going to have to mine— their little gray cells and try to figure this out because he does not seem to have a lot of faith in the powers of Inspector Chrome. We're going now to talk about the world as it actually is. I will just, this is such a pedantic quibble, but did it bother you at all, Catherine, that it was never acknowledged either in the novel or in the Cichet adaptation, that it's not just that the last name begins with the letter A, B, and C, but it's the first name, too. And it really bothers me that when they're frantically looking for people in Churston, it's like, don't just alert people with the last name beginning with C, but it has to be the first and the last. It's like they, right. you, they well, always well, gloss over that down. point. And it's like, that's actually really significant, because there are way fewer people whose first and last names begin with the same letter well, let me, than said, just the last name. Ca-
1: I suppose it's possible they were doing that. I, does it say directly that they were only contacting people with the surname? It doesn't. But no C? one,
0: at no point, does anyone ever specifically no, state I kn-
1: I know. first I know. and last.
0: And yet she bothered to make it first and last, even with Elizabeth Barnard, whose name you know, whose Is nickname Betty? was right. Betty. It just it irritates me. And
1: yeah, it seems like it would have made it much easier for Scotland Yard to have done yeah. so.
0: Anyway, let's so let's talk about the world as actually is because it appears right now that there is a psychopathic serial killer on the loose, intent on taunting poor with his crimes, and that we, in reading an Agatha Christie novel, are essentially reading a Law and Order SVU episode, which is
1: <laughs> right, like really this bizarre. Designed to terrify you at night, where you see the cutaway scenes of the killer doing his dirty work by, like, hanging out on a park bench in Churston or the nearby town to Churston, and like muttering to himself crazily.
0: And let's just talk about that POV thing. So most of the novel is from Hastings's perspective, but then there are these little interstitial moments that are a third-person perspective, seemingly actually written by Hastings, by the way, because in the beginning of the novel, he says that he got all this information and, you know, synthesized it all when he was reviewing the case, so he was able to create these third-person moments, so maybe that's why they're so awkward. I at least thought they were awful. They just really grated on me, and in those moments, we're seeing Alexander Bonaparte Cust do these seemingly nefarious things, wondering if he is actually the killer, well, and just wondering what's really going on and how, how this is an Novel, you know,
1: right? But we don't even quite see him. He's just befuddled, I right? Mean, that's He's not. What we don't getting. see
0: him actually killing anyone or anything. We, we, we don't get any any proof positive. So, as astute readers, we should not be tricked into thinking, oh, he must be the murderer. But it's there. There's clearly something going on, and it's really weird. Someone actually compared it to the man in the brown suit. How we have the switch of POVs in that book but I think it works so much better in that one because the book is mainly written from the third person and then we get those Sir Eustace diary entries which are charming and kind of amusing well, in their own also, way. I mean, this is the opposite the, and it's weird.
1: Well, you know, I would also say this about the, well, at least the payoff in the Men in the Brown suit with the Sir Eustace diary entries is that she ends up getting them after the fact. So when we're reading them interspersed, it's kind of it feels like there's a build to it and that it pays off in some way. And it's an actual
0: record; it's like a document that's being inserted, whereas this is this weird third-person narration,
1: right? And it's it's, his—it's in the Man in the Brown Suit; it's his narration, totally of the events. And so here, I understand and I respect that she was trying to do something different stylistically. Sure, me too it what it does is it it reduces the tension in some way. Yeah. Because we're seeing this and I'm going to be honest, I really, really like this book. So I wanna just preface sure. what I'm about to say I, by I saying that too. I really enjoy reading it and I enjoyed reading it when I was a kid, but there's very little tension to the mystery and the payoff to me is not necessarily worth any of the stylistic changes.
0: I agree. I think there could have been a more elegant way to do it. And what's interesting is that it's one of the few times in which... An adaptation automatically erases that problem, right? Because the adaptation necessarily has to be all third person perspective. And the Suchet adaptation of this is, I think it's excellent, and we don't have that problem. Because every time the camera's cutting to Alexander Bonaparte Cust, it feels natural and it feels like a coherent part of the story in a way that it just does in the novel. It's the opposite of Murder of Roger Ackroyd, which was such a disaster to adapt because you're alighting the POV brilliance of the book. By adapting it here, you're actually getting rid of a problem that's inherent in the novel. The story actually works better as a movie than as a book, which is really not something I, I, I almost ever say for a Christie novel.
1: I think especially if you think about the trend in recent years uh, towards, uh, I guess you would call them psychological thrillers, mm-hmm. more than um, a standard mystery novel or police procedural. This is not uncommon necessarily, where you follow the killer, basically, sure. right? It reminded and me of, so, like, a
0: Karen Slaughter novel. I don't okay, know if you've yeah. read her, but, but the, like, it had, it had a little bit of that feel to it. Or that's why and I said, know, like, Law & Order SVU.
1: Right. But, yeah. and so, but so if you're going to do that, if you're going to do a psychological thriller, I think that that is a valid structural choice. Mm-hmm. I think that you can play really an interesting cat and mouse game if the reader sees both sides of the picture. They're not really figuring out anything. They're waiting to see how the pieces merge. Yeah. If that were the case here, that would be one thing. However that's not the case here. What we're getting are weird interstitials that I think a, an astute reader knows pretty early on can't possibly be be
0: the answer. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing. And exactly what you just said, uh, uh, There, there's a lot of enjoyment to be had from a novel in which you are just watching the pieces come together passively. One can read Christie that way. And, and we've come across some listeners to the podcast who absolutely re- read Christie that way. And I actually read a lot of Christie that way, especially when I was younger, not trying to actively solve the mystery. And just I think Edmund Wilson talks about that in that you know, screed and that he that he wrote against mystery readers and he's horrified that some people read passively like that. There's nothing wrong with that, but the classic way to read Christie is actively, right? In, mm-hmm. in that you right. are trying like a, to help solve like the a mystery. Puzzle
1: exactly. Puzzle.
0: exactly. And this is one where and you'll see as we're going through our clues, we keep on making joking references to almost divinely inspired astute readers, because I just don't know if anyone can really get there. And that's usually not the case for a Christie novel. But we will get there. Let's talk about our clues as they Are So, of course, this isn't a psychopathic serial killer novel.
1: (laughs) Sort of is.
0: Sort of is. But let's talk about our first clue, which does involve our seemingly psychopathic serial killer. Yeah, right. And we should preface it by saying
1: that Poirot and Hastings, while they have put together their quote-unquote legion, they get a call saying that the dying Lady Clark is briefly lucid. And could they please come as soon as possible to pay her a visit because she has something to tell them? And so what it turns out is that she has overheard what that husband-stealing husky secretary, Thora Gray, has told the police. And that's that nobody came to the house on day of Sir Carmichael's murder, And so what Lady Clerk says is, well, she's lying to you. That's not true. That's absolutely not true. Because she saw from the window that she's stuck by day in and day out. She saw Thora speaking to a mystery man at the door of the manor house.
0: Yeah, so clue number one, Poirot confronts Thora about this and says, did you not in fact see someone? And she's like, no, 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 I didn't. Oh, wait. Oh my God, I'm such an idiot. I actually did. And she realizes that she forgot because he was so forgettable this sad little salesman who came to the door selling stockings. And this is also, I mean, this is so telling in terms of how this book works because we are given that crucial clue and then the solution to the clue immediately. Um, in right. that Poirot says, ah. Oh, Remember, in the first murder, uh, Alice Asher had just bought stockings. There were new stockings laid over a chair. And in the second murder, there was mention made of new stockings that had been bought for Betty Barnard and never actually worn because they had just been bought that day. And Poirot makes the connection that there must be a stocking salesman who had been prowling around while these murders were happening. And guess who is a stocking salesman?
1: Could it be mm, our dear Mr. Cust?
0: Yeah, so that's a major clue. And at this point in the story, also, there's another letter. Things are converging onto Doncaster, as we mentioned. And then there is this scene where the cast of characters who are related to the three previous victims, they all converge and they're trying to essentially ferret out who this killer is. And then we get this odd murder of George Earlsfield, who happens to be sitting next to someone with a D. And we know that Alexander Bonaparte Cust was also in the movie theater, at least around the time when this was happening. And then he seems to have blood on his sleeve and has a knife in his pocket and he's freaking out the news seems to be tightening on alexander bonaparte cust and the landlady and the landlady's daughter and the landlady's daughter's boyfriend they get suspicious then they go to the police and basically alexander bonaparte cust is brought into custody and charged and chrome thinks case solved and at this point we're still really in the world as it appears to be we have not gotten to the world as it actually is and it all happens very quickly what this solution is toward the end of the novel and I would say that the first true clue in terms of what is really going on in the story comes from wait for it Captain Hastings because oh my goodness I know, as often happens, when Captain Hastings babbles and thinks that he's just saying things inconsequentially, that's actually when he accidentally says something consequential. It's the sort of a broken clock is right two times a day.
1: Thing. Well, that's also why Paro. It's- Poirot's Keeps favorite reason for keeping him around, yeah. yeah.
0: So Hastings says this. He says, how odd all this is, Poirot. Do you know this is the first crime of this kind that you and I have worked on together? All our murders have been, well, private murders, so to speak. And then Poirot responds, you are quite right, my friend. Always up to now, it has fallen to our lot to work from the inside. It has been the history of the victim that was important. The important points have been who benefited by the death. What opportunities had those around him to commit the crime? It has always been the crime in team Here, for the first time in our association, it is cold-blooded, impersonal murder. Murder from the outside. And I think this is a brilliant clue, and this kind of goes to the cleverness of this whole story, because it's kind of like Christy is baiting the reader here, because that's a total fake-out. It actually isn't an outside murder. This is a murder that is committed for a personal reason, and we'll get to why there are multiple murders, which is going back to three-act tragedy, in my opinion, anyway. No, right,
1: but there are four murders here, and so sure. three of them, Yeah, but you know. the
0: reason for them all has to do with a very personal reason. What Christy's doing here is exactly what she did in three-act tragedy. She's just doubling down on it. That's all. She's adding flair to what she already did in three-act tragedy. But I think that's kind of the first clue that's giving us a sense that this actually is not what it seems to be. This is not an outside murder, that there there has to be a personal reason. And Poirot really does harp on over and over again this idea of motive. He's constantly like, yes, 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 obviously we have multiple murders here, but there has to be a reason why. And Chrome is like, who cares? It's a crazy person. And Poirot won't let it go. You're a
1: clever reader. Essentially, you can look at this and you can say, okay, well, yeah. This is
0: our clue number three. So if motive is so important, who among those three murders has a super strong reason to be killed. You
1: can argue that Franz Asher has a motive of loathing towards his wife.
0: Sure, but it's muddy.
1: You can argue that Donald Fraser has a motive of loathing and lust sure. towards Betty Barnard. But if you, but actually, it's also muddy. Which is also muddy. But what is the most obvious solution to most of these? And guess what? It's always going to be lucre. Yeah, it's money. It's money.
0: So there's only one victim here who's super rich, and that's Carmichael Clark.
1: Who would want him dead.
0: And who would want him dead? Perhaps his brother who inherited. So given all of Poirot's harping about motive, again, I think this would have to be, like, a divinely inspired, astute reader to get there. I certainly never would, never could. But that is a clue pointing us in the right direction. And then a little bit more concretely, while we're still on motive, we also have a letter that is excerpted in this book. And that's a ding-ding-ding moment Mm -hmm. in terms of what's important in a Christie novel, stretching all the way back to Mysterious Affair at Styles*. If Letters are excerpted in a text, even if they seem not that important, as is the case here, they usually are. And this was a letter that Franklin Carmichael shows to Poirot from his deceased brother in which he's talking about his secretary, Thora Gray. And he's saying, you know, I, I think of her as a daughter, but it's obvious that he's very affectionate toward her. And the clue here is that for a man who is due to inherit from his rich brother... If there is this young lady who he seems to at least have a very healthy affection for and is perhaps protesting a bit much about thinking of her as a daughter, maybe he's going to get nervous that after his very ill, cancer-ridden wife dies, he is going to marry said sexy secretary who is certainly of childbearing age and could have kids and knock that brother right out of the inheritance line. So there's a reason why the murder would have to happen now, right also, now. Yeah. Given that, given that letter. Mm-hmm. A penultimate clue here is there was one thing right that was different about the way the Clark murder played out and that was the fact that the letter came to Poirot too late, late. having yeah. been addressed incorrectly mm-hmm. and this is another case in which Hastings stumbles upon the truth because he just spews it almost seems like it could have been sent missent sent on purpose and right. he doesn't actually believe that but Poirot realizes that that's late in the fact case, true That's exactly what happened because that meant that Scotland Yard and Poirot could not investigate until the murder had actually happened, unlike with all of the other murders. And now we get to our final clue here, which is really the crux of how and why this all happened. If that one murder of Sir Carmichael Clark was the important murder, then why all the other murders? Why are poor Alice Asher and Betty Bardard killed? And it's misdirection. And we saw this in Three Act Tragedy, right? The the first murder of Reverend Babington was not important. Yes, you could say it was a dress rehearsal because an actor... was The murderer, but it was also a means of obfuscation. And with all of the focus being on why did that first murder happen, he escaped that much more easily in the second. And this is like the gonzo version of that it's like not well, just one murder, it's three, yeah, and it gets, but it's the same principle. Well, and it gets even, really is the even, same principle, it
1: absolutely is. And it gets even weirdly more gonzo in this version because of the setup of Cust. So basically, Cuss gets ratted out to the police by his landlord's daughter's boyfriend, Tom Hardington. They go to the police and they're like, you know, that's really weird. He's been in like every location of these murders. Yeah. And so the police bust in and they raid his closet. And all he has are rows and rows of women's stockings. And then behind them parcels of ABC guides and then on a table you have the typewriter that wrote all the letters to borrow Mm -hmm. and so what Cust says is that the stocking company sent him all of these things and he's never seen the ABC guides before and guess what he's telling the truth Except
0: he's telling the truth, but even worse, the murderer was so devious that he basically convinces poor cuss himself that he did it.
1: I know he does. He gaslights him. It's cruel. He gaslights gaslights him. him. And not only that, so, so there is no stocking company. It's our our dear murderer the whole time. And he's been like, just like setting this guy up. He's been making him go to all these towns to sell stockings, which like there is no stocking (laughs) company.
0: That might be the cruelest part of all, I know, <laughs> like, I being know. a stocking salesman for no For, for no, reason. no reason.
1: Yeah, and the poor man uh, is epileptic and suffers from, I guess, memory Blackouts,
0: loss. essentially. Yeah, This is basically, ass. he's basically like Rachel from Girl <laughs> Girl on the Train. Just tell me what happened that night. How could it be so Why are you here? Because I'm afraid of myself. Right? Yeah he's, yeah. he's like tricked into thinking by his own by his own faulty brain. He's he's, he's tricked into thinking that he perhaps could be the murderer because it isn't. He doesn't even know what he did. No, so, it's just really
1: really sad, and like, he has no family or anything. The only person who seems to care about him is Lily, who's the landlady's daughter.
0: Right, she tries to warn him at the last minute, which is really bizarre. Um, yeah, it's actually really
1: weird. <laughs> it's,
0: like, it's a really bizarre character. It didn't quite play. No. I, 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 I needed a little bit more about Lily, if, if that was really going to resonate in the story. Her Or, right. you know, trying to give him a chance to get away. But in any case, I mean, and so Poirot and Cust have this great scene where Poirot says, so you, you you're convinced, essentially, that you did it, but you don't know why you did it. And... Cust says yes and luckily for him the Betty Barnard murder is the one murder where there's another man who was playing dominoes with him at the time and who says no, 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 no this man could not have done it so Cust is so confused because he's like well I, I did play dominoes with him so I guess I didn't do that murder but it's all a mess and then Poirot convenes everyone and he basically brings them through how it's Franklin Carmichael and it's funny because he basically says it wasn't sporting and he treats Franklin Carmichael with such contempt because not only is he an evil horrible, multiple murderer. But he pulled the wool over this innocent man's eyes. And again, with Poirot, it's always the innocent, right? It's always the life of the innocent. And he was ready to just destroy this man on top of the people he killed.
1: The poor man's name, Alexander Bonaparte Cust, is a curse inflicted on him by his parents because the man is like this milk toast nothing. His
0: mother thought that he would amount to more than he did, and he's just... He's a brilliant character, I, I think. I, I only at the end though. I mean my my problem is the way he's portrayed in those interstitials is just Right. I don't know. And it's
1: like unclear even how the epilepsy works because it turns out he'd been in the war. It's very unclear about how any of this is like actually happening other than the guy is such a sad sack that yeah. to really inflict this kind of damage on the poor man is really, really cruel.
0: Yeah. So that's the ABC murders, and... <laughs> we should talk a little bit about the adaptations because they're, they're actually pretty interesting. And I did want to note, for our good friend Mark Aldrich, whose, whose book we always consult whenever we're doing a podcast on any novel, it's essential reading, that I thought it was fascinating that when MGM was initially making offers on Christie novels, that the ABC Murders was the novel that they most wanted in 1936. So at that point, we had Murder on the Orient Express, we had Peril and House, we had Lord Edward dies, and that the ABC murders they were willing essentially to lay down the most money for. They also wanted to lay down that m- much money for Murder on the Orient Express, to be fair. But it's not a super celebrated Christie, but I'm not surprised by it because, as I said, I think it, it films well, and we'll, we see that with the David Suchet version. Where it does not film as well is in this 1965 Tony Randall. Adaptation that was done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Agatha Christie actually (laughs) never saw it. Herself, She um, actually wrote to someone saying, the ABC murders I was not allowed to see. My friends and publishers told me the agony would be too great. These movies added insult to injury. And also, as Mark discusses in his book, this was kind of the final nail in the coffin of the MGM movies. They had done, as we've discussed before, those Margaret Rutherford, Miss Marple films. There are some people who, who absolutely love them. They do have a charm of their own. Agatha Christie, depending on who she was talking to, either loathed them or tolerated them or perhaps even enjoyed them. But this is the tail end of that. It's almost like the Poirot equivalent to Margaret Rutherford's Miss Marple. So Tony Randall, not surprisingly, of the Odd Couple TV series and a few years after this, uh, has a very comedic take on Poirot. And there's even a moment in which Poirot and Miss Marple meet outside of a police station. And I've actually been waiting to talk about this issue because I think this is a very modern issue when it comes to fandom of any author who's created a lot of works and has a quote unquote verse, like the Christie verse. Right. So even in Agatha Christie's day, apparently people constantly wrote to her saying, can you please have Miss Marple and Mr. O'Pauro meet in a book? And this was her response. This is from her autobiography. And I just, I just think it's really entertaining. People never stop writing to me nowadays to suggest that Miss Marple and Hercule Poirot should meet. But why should they? I am sure they would not enjoy it at all. Hercule Poirot, the complete egoist, would not like being taught his business by an elderly spinster lady. He was a professional sleuth. He could not be at home at all in Miss Marple's world. No, they are both stars, and they are stars in their own right. I shall not let them meet unless I feel a sudden and unexpected urge to do so. And she, in fact, never did feel the unexpected urge to do so. So it's yet another sort of element of this movie that goes, against canon and i guess it plays whimsically for some people but this movie is bizarre i will just say this this will be the only tidbit that i'm going to throw out there about this movie and then we can move on instead of alice asher as the first victim the first victim is a wait for it aqua clown what is an aqua clown you might ask an aqua clown is a clown Who dives from a the high dive into a pool, and it is in fact as the clown is about to dive in that he is shot in the neck with a dart, and then floating dead in the pool, a la Sunset Boulevard. That is how this movie opens up. It's supposed to be trippy and surreal, and hey, it's the 60s. We're all on drugs anyway. Not very Christy. (laughs) Anita Eckberg is in it. This is not La Dolce Vita. Let's just say that. (laughs) I was Um, about
1: to say, it's a little bit slumming it.
0: A little bit slumming it. She barely speaks. She's supposed to be the, she plays ABC. She plays Alexander Bonaparte Cust's character. Her name's Amanda something something. It is weird. I cannot say that I recommend watching it, but it was an interesting viewing experience.
1: Am I hallucinating this? But isn't Tony Randall also in the adaptation of Man in the Brown Suit?
0: You are not hallucinating that, Catherine Brobeck, and that is an excellent connection. We've already made one connection between these two novels, and that is the second. Tony Randall played Edward Chichester with the reverend the good reverend Chichester who then dressed up as like five different people both in the novel and in the adaptation he dresses up as a woman at some point he dresses up as a gangster Um, yes who knew Tony Randall with all of these Agatha Christie adaptations anyway also worth noting for Christie nerds that Austin Trevor who was the first Poirot in film adaptations in the 30s actually plays a butler in this movie as well but let's move on and talk about the 1992 Suchet adaptation this was in season slash series four it was the first episode right before Death in the Clouds, actually, which we discussed Mm -hmm. uh, not too long ago. Suchet himself, and this is from his book now, he loved this one. He actually wrote, ABC is a delight, perhaps even my favorite Poirot film. And more to the point, for me, the scene that Donald, he just refers to him as Donald, but it's Donald Sumter, who plays Alexander Bonaparte Cust, the scene that Donald and I played together in a jail cell is one of the highlights of all the Poirot films that I have made, It is that very effective scene in which Poirot is not even trying to reason with Cust because he knows he's so far gone, but just feeling pity for him. And Donald Sumter really does play it amazingly because you feel a lot of sympathy for this poor man. told me some amazing
1: things. Said I was going to be the most celebrated man in England before I died. But but that... Almost looks as though you're going to die on the gallows. I said. Laughed afterwards. Said it was only a joke. But I suffer quite badly from my head, you know. I mean, there are times when I don't. I don't seem to remember what I've done.
0: But you do know that you committed the murders? Yes.
1: Yes, I do know that. And I am right, am I not? That you do not know why you committed them? Oh. No.
0: I've mentioned, you know, I think that this adaptation works really well. There's a lot of jokey hijinks going on with a Cayman that Hastings mm-hmm. brings back from a trip. He's not in Argentina in this. They kind of fudge that, but... It doesn't necessarily all work out. It's like there's this button in which Cust comes and actually brings flowers to Poirot, which I did find really touching. Like the idea of a man bringing another man flowers, not in a romantic way, but just as this grateful gesture. I actually thought that was a nice touch, but it gets really jokey really quick. And he ends up sitting down with Hastings and Hastings is telling him the story, his hunting story about the Cayman, which he's been trying to tell everyone throughout the whole episode. And it just gets like super light a little too quickly for me. I didn't like the ending of it, but I thought that they played with the creepiness really well, and all the time that we were watching Donald Sumter as Cust worked within the film. It just all kind of held together a lot better than right, it does in the novel. Right,
1: Well, I mean, again, though, this also goes back to the issue sometimes with the Hastings narration. You know, as much as yeah. we like it, it really does affect how you read a book, especially if you're going to switch off of it.
0: Yeah, And...
1: Limiting. It is limiting. And so, you know, if we remove that and we remove essentially that prejudice, right, Mm -hmm. it's obviously going to be slightly more compelling, that other bit of awkward interstitial.
0: Yeah. The only other thing I will note for Christie Nerds on this adaptation is that Nicholas Farrell, who's totally one of those, oh yeah, that guy character actors, he plays Donald Frazier in this version, and this is 1992. He is one of the few actors who would then go on to play a completely different character. We've already covered this one in 13 Years Later, 2005's The Mystery of the Blue Train he plays Secretary Knight and that doesn't happen often that they reuse an actor for a completely different role because it's jarring when you realize that but it did happen here. I think
1: they do it a few times. They, do it, a few time. they do it a
0: handful of times. I mean for as many Poirots as there are though like they clearly tried to avoid it but Nicholas Farrell is a good actor. so.
1: I, well the most confusing thing is like when somebody is in a Marple and then they're also in a Poirot <laughs> yeah. and then they're also in like an Inspector more <laughs> <laughs> <Yes. laughs> It's like you know you don't blame them but it's a little bit like you will be watching Game of Thrones, and you'll be like, okay, that actor was in, like, two episodes of Marple and an episode of Poirot, and, like... And now throw in the um, crown
0: also, and it's just like, (laughs) So let's talk about our rankings and get right into it on plot mechanics. I think it's pretty clear what I think at this point of the plot mechanics and that I think they're clever, but not brilliant, because this is a... Gonzo, rather well-executed Gonzo version of the innovation that she landed upon in three-act tragedy. There's a lot to be said for that Gonzo version. Not just multiple murderers and would-be serial killer, but the framing of that serial killer. And it's all done pretty well. It's done with a lot of panache. I don't know if it's done quite masterfully which is why... Yeah, I mean,
1: I would say, you know what, I would say A for effort.
0: Yes, exactly, exactly. A for effort, but, like, in a real, like, not in a condescending way. Like, I, I really, you know, I think we both really mean that, A for effort, because she's she was trying something new also. This was experimental, and more experimental in 1936 than it appears now.
1: Right.
0: So I came out on a six, which is... I think that that's, you
1: know, seems yeah, about Yeah, right? which is
0: very, very strong. So, Catherine, what do you think about plot credibility?
1: Well... I don't know. I had some issues in the past with React Tragedy. I will say this much. I believe this more than I believe dressing up and playing like a farce amongst people that you know.
0: We at least don't have any dressing up issues. That is true. Yeah. There's no no dressing
1: up issues. (laughs) I mean, the idea of faking a serial killer in order to cover up a crime is really sick.
0: It's really it's really sick and and I I hear you on having that problem with three act tragedy. I think the problem is only worse here because it is the mega version of that.
1: Well, I mean I think that here's the other credibility aspect is that you're creating this incredibly elaborate murder plot. I mean, just like think of all of the moving pieces here. Mm-hmm. And you're doing that Based on essentially then cultivating a patsy, that to me... That idea that you would go to such a risk each and every time you actually commit a crime, first of all, and then you would go to that additional risk of setting up another person and involving another person in it, that yeah. to me is actually the least credible element. If this were actually just a story about a seri- uh, somebody killing random people in order to cover up a crime, right. that actually at some level would be far more believable than the setup of Cust.
0: Right, of the frame of the frame up of him. I agree. Uh I mean, this is kind of a consistent thing with us that credibility we usually score lower than the mechanics because Christy often spins a lot of plates in the air and has outstanding mechanics, but at the expense of credibility sometimes because it's a stretch. It's an entertaining stretch, and it's a clever stretch, but yeah, it really does seem like it's a serial killer, and then the explanation for why it's not, and why it's not the person that we've been tracking for all this time, and who even thinks himself that he did it, it makes sense. She's done her homework and made it work on Mm -hmm. paper, but it doesn't have that seal of, oh yeah, I believe that that could even potentially happen in the real world, and sometimes these Christie novels just don't have them because she has a lot of crazy stuff happening, and that's fine, but it's where the credibility Suffers. I also had a really specific problem with the fact that we're told that the reason why Franklin Carmichael sent the letters to Poirot was that he needed a private address that he could send the wrong address to. If he had been sending the letters to Scotland Yard, obviously the third letter would have gotten there on time and, you know, it would have made his committing the true murder that much harder. But really, Monsieur Poirot is who you're going to send the letters to? Like, one of the foremost, nay, most brilliant detectives in in, in all the land? Come on.
1: But, I mean, I guess the idea is if you send them to some random hack PI, then they're not going to get credibility from Scotland Yard, which is then not going to cause this sort of nationwide panic that there is a crazed serial killer on the
0: loose. Except it would when people actually started getting killed, (laughs) like, in the way that they're just, you know, predicted in the letter.
1: Maybe, although it would probably take longer. I mean, Poirot obviously can just really waltz into Scotland Yard and have attention drawn to
0: him. No, it's a quibble. That's why it's, like, a tick lower, I think, than the mechanics. Yeah, I think so. why I think we're coming out on a five on Mm -hmm. plot credibility. I think that's right. Still not terrible though. I mean we've we've certainly gone a lot lower for other novels. Then serials long characters, I don't know about you, Catherine, but this is where I think the novel does really well. Oh, I yeah. I think that there's so many not not only so many good moments between Hastings and Poirot and Jap, which we've alluded to, but this book also references so many of the previous books. Mm-hmm. I mean I made a list of all of them, and Murder on the Links, Three Act Tragedy, Mystery of the Blue Train, Murder on the Orient Express, Death in the Clouds, Lord Edgeware Dies, and even Curtain, oddly. Mm -hmm. Christie clearly was thinking about Curtain. We know that she wrote it and put it in a vault in the early years of World War II, so it makes sense that in 1936 she would be thinking about this. So she references Curtain. And she also references Cards on the Table, which we will get to not the next novel, but the novel after that, which she was obviously working on at the same time. So as a Christie nerd, I really appreciated all of those references.
1: I sometimes think that we overestimate the relationship between those three characters because it's so prominent on the TV series. And that is certainly Mm -hmm. the case in a bunch of the novels. But I do think that they have a really... We get a hefty dose of them here, and I love that.
0: Jap mentions Poro's face fungus again. It's just, <laughs> like, maybe my, my favorite phrase. I agree. This one had just as much of the camaraderie and the interactions as as those adaptations do, which I, I loved. So I think we're coming out on an eight,
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Like that? Mm Yeah. Yeah, very high. And then book-specific characters is pretty good. I tend to concentrate on the female characters. We all know that Catherine does not have the same affection for Ladies of Christie, but... um, That's not
1: entirely true.
0: (laughs) I was was waiting for you to (laughs) Um, take offense to that. But um, I did think a lot of the minor female characters in this were standout. When I was thinking, okay, which characters really worked for me, the first ones I thought of were Mary Drower, who really is a standout in the novel and is not in the adaptation, actually. That, that was one thing that was lost in the adaptation. But her quiet indignation yeah. about what happened to her aunt is really effective it in is. the novel. It's also very effective when Poirot is looking at Alice Asher's body and talking about how you can tell that she was beautiful once. Mm-hmm. There's nothing nothing as poignant as Poirot looking at a, a corpse and getting all misty-eyed misty eyed, and sentimental. Right? Yeah. Um, and Megan Barnard, we mentioned, she's a, she's a great character. I even thought Lady Carmichael, that interview between Lady Carmichael and Poirot, it's really good. I mean, she's out of it, and you just really you feel that this woman is not long for this world and it was really well rendered. You
1: also feel a little bit like maybe she's being kept even more drugged than she really needed to be.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's never, that's all subtext. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. I totally got that too because Thora Gray does end up being a bit of an adventurous, it seems she was basically trying to marry Sir Carmichael, and if not Sir Carmichael, then Franklin. Oh my gosh! And and
1: adventurous. You had such harsh words for Betty Barnard, but lovely, <laughs> a lovely. Sora Gray is an adventurous, Intriguing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. No, I totally agree. There was a lot of not great stuff happening in that house, for sure. And the men were good, too. Donald Fraser, in particular, of the fiery hair and the fiery temperament was was Mm well-drawn. So I think we're coming out on a six.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: uh, Okay, for book-specific characters. Then setting a tone is, I think it's fine. Again, A, for effort, right? Because Christy really was doing something different here, and we do get a sense of creepiness, that I think people don't always give her credit for having. This is why we and I'm sure many of you dear listeners roll your eyes when people talk about Christy being cozy. She's not cozy. Horrible things happen to good people <laughs> in her books all the time. Well
1: and you know and I think that I think that some of the really good stuff is um actually, you know, I know we are a little bit tossing shade at the cussed interstitial chapters. But Mm -hmm. on the other hand, there's something about watching and overhearing the beachgoers after Sir Carmichael's murder. Um, mm-hmm. Which is has a certain Chilling effect People talking mm-hmm. about Like going To that beach Or they had just Picnicked at that beach Etc yeah. wa- The watching Of it all And I actually Thought the movie theater Although the, the book Has gone a little Off the rails At that point The yes. movie theater Scene in Doncaster Is really affecting
0: Yeah we do get A um, sense of um, that Hysteria it's, it's
1: a, it's a, Yeah and it's a Callback Actually that scene Is a direct callback To the scene um, In Churston.
0: Sure I think it's done well. I think that's why at least I'm coming out on a five, because there are things she's doing well. There are things that she is trying for that are interesting. I don't think she necessarily achieved everything she was trying for, though. And, and a lot of it is due to the awkwardness of those interstitials overall and the switching back and forth. It's just not consistent.
1: I, you know, I might be willing to go to a six. I mean, I think that there are just details. I think that Green Grocers in Andover is really well described as is a sort of like squalid house next door to the
0: tobacconists. I could do. Um, I, I would do a six. Let's do a six.
1: I also think you get a really pretty vivid portrait actually of the tobacconist shop and the apartment upstairs interestingly enough.
0: No, absolutely. I agree with that. So six for setting and tone and then Its time is going to be really fast and simple for the great reason that this book does remarkably well on that front. I already made several mentions of the fact that we we have the opposite of, of xenophobia here. There's actually, you know, sympathy toward foreigners such as Mr. Asher and even Mr. Poirot himself and no moments that made me shudder as a 21st century reader as we've had in some novels recently i would not deduct anything
1: yeah i don't think there is anything necessarily
0: yeah so zero deductions for that which brings us to the most exciting portion of our episode the tally Hmm. so the total here for the abc murders is six plus five plus eight plus six plus six minus zero for a grand total of 31 points And that puts the ABC murders in, well, let's just have a discussion about this, Catherine. Would you put the ABC murders above or below The Siddiford Mystery? It's a really tough Uh, one, because that has a 31 as well. I suppose I would put it above. You would put it above? Yeah, I think so too.
1: That seems, I think that that seems necessary. I don't know in my heart of hearts if I feel that. But well, I actually I think, think it goes that back
0: to the the prevailing theme. I think is this a for effort idea that I I did yeah. I did really. I think
1: it's I think what's happening here is more interesting
0: exactly than what's
1: happening in the Citiford mystery. And so I think that if we have to do a tiebreaker on that, then the thing that's more interesting is definitely going to take precedence.
0: Agreed. And I was really struck by that. I, I wasn't expecting for this novel to be as different from all the Christie novels that have come before it as it was, because I didn't remember it to be that way. I knew that it was the quasi serial killer Christie, but I was struck by it and impressed by it in a way that I don't remember being when I first read it.
1: Well, and, you know, for all that we complained about it, I mean, I read it in, like, two hours and was like, oh, this was delightful. Like, I really enjoyed reading this. I was very happy to spend two hours doing this. Agreed.
0: It definitely definitely does fall, I mean, the end when the resolution, when we get the ultimate solution, that is when it falls apart, which is a problem. But I I agree that, like, the first three quarters or perhaps even five-sixths of this book are wonderful. And and by the time I finished it, I was like, okay, this is why it's not a classic. But up until then, (laughs) I was in. I was really on board so
1: yeah so you know the fact that it doesn't really stick the landing it's unfortunate I mean, I, like, turned it's the la- i turned the last page and was like mm.
0: i felt the same way so that puts the abc murders in sixth place actually just to do a quick rundown of our top 10 here from first to 10th place the murder of roger ackroyd murder on the orient express peril at in-house the murder at the vicarage three-act tragedy the ABC Murders, The Siddiford Mystery, Lord Edgeworth Dies, Death in the Clouds, and The Secret Adversary.
1: Ta-da! That seems okay. Yeah,
0: I agree. Join us next week when we are actually going back to Miss Marple, but we're shaking things up slightly because we are going to have a special Christmas episode. I noticed that a short story or two ahead of where we otherwise would have been in the Miss Marple 13 Problems collection is a story narrated by none other than Miss Jane Marple herself titled A Christmas Tragedy. How could we not do that story? For our Christmas episode
1: I mean, I think that we have to I think it's a requirement yeah,
0: I think that that is our duty As Christy podcasters So we will be discussing A Christmas tragedy And it
1: will balance out Our Christmas paro From last year Absolutely Listen, everybody A Christy for Christmas Is still a thing As far as we are concerned It's back
0: we we're bringing it it's back. back. By Christy for Christmas. <laughs> so join us then. And in the meantime, you can always contact us via email at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or on Twitter at allaboutthedame or contact Catherine at Brobcat. Or find us on Instagram at All About Agatha or on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. And please do take a moment to rate and review us. We've gotten some of those in recently, and it really, really delights us. And also, incidentally, really helps out the podcast and helps other people find the podcast. So we would really, really appreciate that. We will see you next time. Bye.
1: Bye.